So, Ted Bundy, the topic on everyone's lips lately. Yeah, no, it's really true. So I finally finished binging the Bundy tapes on Netflix. Uh-huh. I was a little bit behind, but we were actually out of down a lot, but I somehow finished. It's true. And so I, I will say, it's good. If you know a lot about Bundy, the first three episodes are you know, standard information. It's yeah. pretty creepy, though, hearing everything in his voice. See, you know what's creepy right now? I uh, I have not seen the Bundy tapes or any of the Bundy documentaries and anything. But the world clearly has, judging by uh, all the stuff I've seen on, like, Facebook and online and stuff. Yeah. What I find really creepy is... Not necessarily the people who are like, Bundy was attractive. Because like, okay, yeah, and that's a big part of it. The people who are like, Bundy's the people who so are like, hot. I want Bundy. I want, I'm like, what the actual fuck is wrong with you? Well, it's like you realize what he did, right? Did you yeah. actually, what, did you, were you paying like, attention to the documentary? I'm like, y'all, there are like a lot of attractive people out there. Fawn about the ones who maybe aren't serial rapists and murderers. Like, yeah, probably a I good mean, that, idea. That's a general rule of thumb. Yeah. Don't fall in love with serial rapists and murderers. <laughs> it's true. I mean, rules to live by. Well, like I was saying, episode four is the one that really, like, it's his trial and everything. And you learn a lot of information. Um, Back, I will say, I think it's in two or three. So the whole Bundy tapes were this one reporter who went in and was interviewing Bundy. Uh-huh. And he eventually gets like, bored out of his mind because nothing's happening. Bundy's not talking about anything. Then he comes up with this great idea to have Bundy talk essentially in the third person, but not where it's kind of like, Hey, you have a degree in psychology. What do you think was going through the mind of the person who did this? And that gave Bundy an avenue to talk about everything he had done without it being a confession. And so that's how all those details came out. He was not confessing to all of that, but it's like he immediately, he being Bundy, he it, it's like he just flips the switch and yeah. he's in, he almost as if maybe he was sad he didn't, you know, kind of pissed he didn't come up with that idea himself so he could have told the story. I mean, fair. So it was really good. And in episode four is, like I said, it was the trials and... One thing that I did find out that was really interesting, I didn't realize the person um, who directed the Bundy tapes was the same person who directed the movie that's coming out with Zac Efron as Bundy. Oh. And... I didn't either. Yeah, so... That makes more sense, because I'm like... It does. Why are these both so connected? Like, yes, it's they're both over Ted Bundy, but, mm-hmm. like, all of the marketing and word of mouth stuff... Like, I almost thought, oh, did the movie come out on Netflix? No, the Bundy tapes are a different thing. Like, I was very confused. Exactly. Well, because the trailer was released, like, the day after, or the day the Bundy tapes went live. But one of my favorite parts, also, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you the last line of the whole thing. No, that was a lie. I can't remember the exact last line. But towards the end, spoiler alert if you don't know the end of his trial. And as most people know, at least I hope you know, Mm -hmm. he was sentenced to death by the electric chair. He actually got three death sentences. You could also listen to our episode that Brittany covered Ted Bundy. You could. I think it's 28. Uh, I think. Sure. Yeah. One of, you know, when the judge was giving him this death sentence, because mm-hmm. he got convicted, he was guilty. Yeah. <laughs> Generally, Generally how trials go. 
And the judge was saying that what he did was extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile. And that's oh, why that's where the title yes, comes from. And that's why he got the death sentence. And I had no idea. I was like, where is this movie title coming from? It felt just very out of the blue. No, it's yeah. what the judge said to him. Okay. Because so. there's this it makes me think of like some very artsy Oscar bait movie. Like, I don't know. Do you remember that one? It's like incredibly loud and, and super quiet. Or, <laughs> and that's like Tom Hanks in it or something. Yes. Incredibly close and loud and something. Yeah, it was incredibly loud and extremely close. Okay. I was I was extremely close. You were extremely close. That's the one um, about 9-11. Yeah. And that's it's what a this, great movie. Uh, I've never seen it. But, obviously. But, um... I don't see movies. I know. I don't. But see. the um, the Ted Bundy movie, with that title, I'm like, I thought that's it was what something like that of. too. I'm yeah. like, okay, well, no. all right. But anyway, if y'all haven't watched the Bundy tapes, highly recommend it. Also, there is controversy going around about the movie and how it's, um, you know, the preview looks like it's a preview for some action movie and how they're romanticizing Bundy and like, you know, he's this really attractive guy. But the point is, he was so unsuspected. He was the yeah. type of person that, yes, everyone thought he was that great guy. And he was a fucking serial killer. Yeah. And it's just one of those, one of the last lines of the Bunny Tapes is about how serial killers and murderers, there are people walking around everywhere. And oh, yeah. you never know who they are. And this is said in Bunny's words, and it's bone chilling. The end of that documentary. Well, because... There are, you know, people are saying, oh, it's so scary, it's so scary. And I'm like, no, the first three episodes, not really. To me, the fourth one, yes. I was creeped out because he's creepy. Yeah. Everything about him is so creepy. He's Ted Bundy. The fact that he, you know, was a better looking individual, sure. But Have we I... even introduced ourselves yet? No. Okay. No. Sorry, I, I just had that thought. <laughs> This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. <laughs> I'm Tyler. And this is us being like 15 minutes into the episode without saying that. At probably like seven minutes, but oh, okay. okay. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. So, anyway, I interrupted. But basically, watch it if you haven't. It's really yes. good. Anyway, yeah, I'll stop. I'll stop okay. because that's not our topic today at all. It's, it's true. not funny, but it's just, I just finished it and I had, especially the, the thing with the movie title, I really wanted to tell you. Yeah. Incredibly loud, extremely close. Got it. Yeah. That's, no, not that one. Well. The extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile. Yep. That's similar. the one. Three billboards past Ebbing, Mississippi. Got it. Um, <laughs> so, I want to take a moment to uh, thank our newest Patreon. Yes. Or Patreoner? Patreon supporter? I don't Patron? Know. I honestly don't know. It's don't whatever know. we Patron decide. Patron sounds weird. Anyway, Nicola... Thank you so much for becoming our newest Patreon person. Um, Nicola is our newest Merlot Mafia member. Yes. Which is one of our four different levels on Patreon. Yes. So she's getting access to Murder Minis, a handwritten note from the two of us, mm -hmm. and a lot of other fun content that we post. And we also, as of you know, very recently, if you're in our top tier, our Cabernet Sauvignon Convicts, you get a, an exclusive blood and wine sticker, too. Exclusive. So. You will be the only people that ever have this sticker. So, yes. just saying. Well, and cool. just so y'all know, 
Murder Mini may sound like it means it's a short little episode. That is not necessarily the case. They're, what, 20 to 50 minutes? And this week, our episode is like a full episode. Yes. But we've called it a Murder Mini, but it's really not. It's our Murder Not So Mini. Yeah. Also, hey, don't forget to subscribe. Yes. We're on Apple Podcasts, Player FM, Google Play. (laughs) uh, My favorite, SoundCloud. Um, I saw a new one today that was like, frangelico listener fm something like that and i was like what the hell is this so if you're listening to us on the bottle of frangelico let you know thank you thanks for subscribe if you can subscribe if you can well so um do you have any current news that you wanted to share uh yes kind of um, yeah. so I just got back from New Orleans, and I'm um, so jealous. earlier this week. You did, yes. It was so fun. I am still recovering, and... <laughs> uh, yeah, he's definitely been, uh, recuperating all week after partying Sorry. in NOLA. Um, it's true. But one of the coolest things we did is I made sure that we went and saw the LaLaurie Mansion in person. Yes. So we've talked about this in our Halloween episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this was Brittany's case. And it's something that is just super interesting. And I wanted to see it in person. And it's just right there in the French Quarter. I know, just, just there on the corner. So we walked to it and we're like, oh, damn. And Is it really big? Like... Does it look big? It's Sometimes it's hard to tell, you know, when you see a photo in a picture. I mean, it does, but it's not a, your typical, when you think mansion, you think like sprawling green yard and like. Yeah. I mean, it's right on the corner. And it's, I mean, it's in basically downtown. So it looks like the buildings around it more or less. Okay. Um, that makes sense. But it's, I mean, it's really nice and it's huge. Be a very big house to live in. Yeah. But uh, it was super cool. And it was funny because it's in a part of the French Quarter where, I mean, there are like some shops and some hotels around, but it's not busy. It's not on one of like the real busy areas. Right. Except for the people taking pictures of the LaLaurie Mansion. And uh, we were absolutely also in that crowd. (laughs) Yes. And then as we were like walking back to the French Quarter, we passed this group of like three or four guys that one of them was just like, ah, is the man, I wonder if the mansion's up this street. And I was just like, yeah, it's like three blocks up. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, by the way, just saw it. Just saw it. Well, and That's you see. Said- the daughters were hung right there. The- <laughs> oh, God. Um, you sent me some photos of it, which mm-hmm. we'll have on our Instagram, but there's like Mardi Gras maps and whatnot, which was surprising yeah. to me because Mardi Gras is still not for another month. Is it not for another month? No, it's March 5th. Oh. See, yeah. the whole city is like starting to prepare for Mardi Gras I right think now. It, because it's New Orleans and I don't know. That's the next Maybe like holiday? Nola's like, maybe, not Nola, maybe Mardi Gras is like a month-long celebration there. I don't know. Why the fuck not? But um, no, it was super interesting and we stayed in the Bywater neighborhood, which uh, was basically Bywater and the French Quarter were more or less the two neighborhoods, or I guess South Bywater, the Bywater part that's close to the Mississippi, mm-hmm. were basically the two areas not that affected by the flooding Katrina. during Katrina. Yeah. Because, I mean, during Katrina, 80% of the city flooded. Yeah. And it's interesting because you'll be driving down roads, and it's been 14 years, mm-hmm. but 
there are still just neighborhoods that there's two or three houses still there. And it's just lots. And everything else is gone. gone. And we didn't go into the lower ninth ward. Um, it, it, it felt inappropriate to, to go like yeah, foresty in the hurricane damage. But you can see, Bywater's not far. It's just on the other side of the industrial canal from the lower ninth ward. And so, you know, when we were like Ubering around, we could see it and it's just crazy how many houses are just gone. I know. And it breaks my heart to think of how much of that city was lost. Yeah. And and all just the the history and memories and I mean mm-hmm. people's lives and yeah. it's it, there, it is heartbreaking. There are a lot of areas that don't really have the old traditional the shotgun style homes anymore because they were all wiped well, out. They're so all the gone. homes that are there now are newer construction. And I mean they're they're still nice, but it's just very weird to be in a city that's so old yeah. and has so much so many historical neighborhoods and then to just see certain areas that are all new because they have to be. Right, because they have to be. Which but yeah, it so I loved New Orleans, had a great time. It is an eight and a half hour drive from Austin. Yeah, and, it's a pretty long um, stretch. And regardless of how you time it, you will go through rush hour traffic in Houston. Which I think happens every 30 minutes, maybe. Yeah, I'm pretty sure rush <laughs> hour in Houston is 24 hours long. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Um. Well, my current news isn't as exciting as a trip because I was here. Actually, I wasn't. I was in Oklahoma. But I, I went on a trip, too, just not as glamorous. Um, it's true. But I have a little bit of nerdy uh, current news, and it's not necessarily current. Kind of is. I'm rambling. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. I listened to a podcast when I was driving to Oklahoma and back. What? You listened to a podcast? I did. I oh did. Oh my gosh. Was it a true crime podcast? It was. And it wasn't ours. Yeah. Well, okay. So it was the Bear Brook murders. Mm-hmm. And those, if you don't uh, know about this yet or don't remember, they are, it, it was in Allenstown, New Hampshire. Uh-huh. When two barrels were were found, those fifty, those blue fifty gallon drums yeah. with bodies in them, oh, two in each, an adult female and three young girls, mm. and one barrel was found in the eighties. The other barrel was found three hundred yards away, fifteen years later. Wow, they had both been there at the same time. So this was a case of who are they mm-hmm. and who did it? Yeah. Well, so. You have got to listen to this podcast. There are six episodes. What's and the name of the podcast? Bear Book. Okay. It is so... It, it'll it blow your mind. Like, the connections that they make. Um, towards the end, it starts talking about DNA. Um, spoiler alert, to this day, we still don't really know who all of these victims are. One of the things that kind of came into the picture for this podcast that I didn't really know was it talked a lot about DNA and using these familial sites like 23andMe, Ancestry. Uh-huh. And it talked about a little bit of the background as to why this has made a difference. So when um, law enforcement and forensics were doing DNA testing, when that was a thing, you know, in the yeah. 90s and early 2000s, and I mean, still today, there's like match DNA, there's 
maternity and paternity. And then there's also familial, which looks for a near match, which means it's someone yeah. that shares most of your DNA characteristics with you. And those, that's the one that you see in, like, I don't know, crime TV shows where they'll have the two, you know, the, like, jagged lines. And they'll be like, oh, these peaks are the same here, here, and here. They must be related. Basically. I mean, obviously, yeah. very, very simplified. But that's exactly how it is. <laughs> it is. Familial DNA researchers, they just look at two little spiky lines and they're like, yeah, those are those are pretty close. Yeah, no. Family. Related. Uh, this is the, uh, the Smiths. So forensics would look at 20 different markers in your DNA when they're looking at familial DNA. Yeah. Well, on the flip side of the coin, there are the geneticists who are looking at, you know, DNA for a completely different reason. They're looking at family history. They're looking at ancestry. And they have advanced DNA so far that they're looking at 700,000 markers. As opposed to 20? As opposed to 20. Wow. That's, um, that's a lot. That's a huge difference. And so now that law enforcement is using some of this information, which also to let you guys know, law enforcement is not sitting there using 23andMe or Ancestry. There is another website that law enforcement uses that They're people... They're not using these. Like, come on, guys. They're using this one. <laughs> no, but it's a site where users can upload their information to compare. Like, so say I do 23andMe and you do Ancestry and we want to compare our results. Yeah. Instead of one of us having to buy the other, we just upload it to the site and they compare it for us. Okay. Why we can't just also look at them side by side? I, I don't really know. Probably because we're not geneticists and we can't compare the squiggly lines. Exactly. We'll see them be like, I don't know. But... Basically, DNA played a huge, huge role in finding the killer of these four victims. Mm-hmm. And as, oh, so as they well found as, the killer, but they don't know who the victims are? It is such a convoluted story that I can't even give you an overview to let you know how this comes about without spoiling some major things. Just trust me, you have to listen to this one. Okay. A woman named Barbara Ray Vinter, and she is the one who studied all of the DNA. Mm-hmm. She's a geneticist oh. and identified the killer. Well, she's also the person who did this same thing to help identify the Golden State Killer through genealogy. Oh, so, so she's just solving everything. She's the one. So the Bearbrook one, she did that first. And that was the case that really broke using um, DNA. And again, I don't want to give the reasons of of how they got to this because there's too many spoils of things that you really have to listen to because I was literally gasping as I listened to this podcast. (laughs) In the car, on the highway. I was. (gasps) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Okay. I was just going to let you know, had we been listening to that and I had been driving and gasping, you would have yelled at me. You always yell at me when I gasp and I'm driving because you're like, what? Are we going to crash? And I'm like, no. He, they just said that the murderer was a two-year-old toddler who was in disguise. And you're like, don't gasp. Don't you dare gasp. And I'm like, okay, I'll stop being surprised then. They just said Amelia Earhart was found at a Safeway in Southern California in 2015 but okay i'll just brush that off okay but your gasps are scary (laughs) they're gasps of surprise okay i know i know but anyway people 
super cool DNA stuff, 20 versus 700,000. Big difference. I mean, also, literally yeah. has made me want to go buy the 23andMe and do it because I'm very, very curious now. Apparently, you can find like thousands of like your fifth cousins. I mean, cool. I don't know them. No, I know. <laughs> I'll be like, we share an ancestor, and they'll be like, okay. I know, but it's just interesting, okay? Anyway, enough of my DNA nerding out. Um, let's get <laughs> okay. to the topic. All right. And this topic, it's actually one I've wanted to do for a while. Um, Brittany has shot it down like twice before. It's a difficult one, okay? It is, but I still wanted to do it because I think it's very interesting and there's a lot of different ways you can go about it. Absolutely. So the topic is burned alive or burned to death. Yeah, murder, yeah. murder by fire. Yeah, because it, it's also something that's so heinous. Well, and it's one of those questions that you always ask, like, how would you rather die, being burned alive or freeze to death? Freeze to death, duh, that's easy. Yeah, because you just, like, get, I don't know, you fall asleep. I mean, I'd also just rather be cold, but that's... But what I'm saying is it's a topic oh, yeah. that people, you know, it's like a greatest fear. Oh, just just like being buried absolutely. alive. Yes, I, I would definitely compare it to Buried Alive, but yeah. I would say worse. So I found some, uh, I guess, fun facts on being burned alive. I'm not thinking they're very fun. No, but they're quick facts. Are you going to talk at all about the Salem Witch Trials? No, I wasn't. Oh. But because well, they weren't actually burned there. Yeah, but, you know, burning witches. I mean, yeah, that's is... the... And witches were burned. Yeah. Or people suspected of being witches. I Spoiler alert, witches aren't real. It's true. I mean, sorry. I also wish they were. I've seen Coven too many times. Anyway, um, but yeah, no, uh, people weren't actually burned at Salem. Oh. Fun fact. That, there's a fun fact that reassuring fact. They were I mean, just they hung. Were, they, were, they were still hung, so it's yeah. not very reassuring. Well, anyway, so getting into uh, facts about burning to death. So thankfully, uh, the thing that'll usually kill you first is carbon monoxide. Oh. In most cases. I hadn't thought about that. Usually, if you are caught in a house fire or, yeah, I don't know. Any type of sexual fire. Yeah. Usually, what will kill you long before the flames ever touch you is smoke inhalation and carbon monoxide poisoning. Yeah. And this actually can also happen to people being executed by being burned at the stake if it's a very large fire and multiple people are being burned. Yeah. Um, if it's one person, usually the flames catch you first. But right. um, another one is that fire peels away your skin. That's what it does. So uh, Ew. it first will like, you know, burn at your epidermis and peel it away, which is the, the epidermis is the very thin outer layer of your skin. Yeah. Um, after about five minutes or so under a flame, the thicker layer of skin, which is the dermis, which is basically... The layer between the skin you see and your muscle underneath Mm -hmm. um, shrinks and splits open and then your fat begins to leak out, which is very flammable and catches fire. But usually you're dead at that point. This is just so... I didn't know you were going to go into such detail of how the burning by fire kills you. I mean, yeah. It's interesting, but oh my gosh. I wish I wasn't picturing this in my head. Um, Did you know your body can burn for up to seven hours? Oh my gosh. So once a body's on fire, it can sustain its own flame for a long time. Um, The body fat acts similar to... 
basically your body acts like a candle wick. Yeah. And it can just burn and um, serve as fuel for the fire, which is gross. The second most common way of dying in a fire is actually by shock. Um, yeah. Which is very quick. Um, and it's kind of the, um, I would say, a more merciful way than burning. It's like you're literally being scared to death. Yeah. Well, in the initial pain of the fire, it can be so severe that your body goes into shock. And when you go into shock, your blood pressure just completely bottoms out suddenly uh, to the point where your vital organs can no longer function and you just you kind just of shut die. down. Yeah. Um, you can also, unfortunately, die of loss of blood from the fire opening your skin. Yeah. Which is horrifying. Yeah. Um, and another way is that you might suffocate because uh, the fire getting into uh, your lungs and blistering your lungs that you can't breathe any more oxygen. It's how a lot of the people in uh, Pompeii died. Oh. From, like, the superheated ash cloud breathing that in and it just, like, boiling and blistering your lungs. Yeah. Burning to wow. death is probably the most gruesome way I can think of dying. And yeah, no, it's horrible. Probably, like, the last way on my list that I would want to die. Yeah. I mean, I honestly can't think of anything worse. No, I can't either. After so, this description. Sorry. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. Uh-huh. I don't really know how I'm supposed to pick back up now. But um, I think now is the perfect time for uh, wine because I need a drink. After hearing all of that, so uh-huh. do I. Uh-huh. The wine I picked for this episode, I know we haven't done a white in a while. Granted, we had a white in last week's episode, but that was our reserve, like, yeah, that backup was our backup wine. wine, so it didn't really, really count, yes. I guess. So this one is Gold Strike Bin 1849. It's a 2017 Chardonnay from Lodi, California. You're telling me it's not an 1849 wine? It's not. We, an... didn't, we didn't spend a couple grand on this? No, we oh my, didn't. Wait, we're not going to get another brown bottle? Of... <laughs> I was going to say, we wouldn't want to drink wine from 1849. <laughs> no, we learned no, that last we episode. Did. We did. So... <laughs> So, Chardonnay is one of the world's most popular grapes, and it's due to its very attractive mouth-filling flavors and the ability it has to grow in a lot of different climates. Fun fact, I hate Chard, so... I I know you do, and you've told our listeners. Yeah, well, I'm just reminding them. So, these grapes, the Chardonnay grape thrives best in France, but it also very well in California. So, like I said, this one's a California Chardonnay. What? A grape that grows well in France or California? How rare. <laughs> you are full of sass today. <laughs> um, this wine is a very rich and full-bodied white wine. It's creamy smooth and toasty, and it has been lightly barrel-aged. When you smell it, we're supposed to smell yellow peaches, some hints of honey, fresh cream, and pineapple, which I don't think I've ever heard the fresh cream as that something I gross. should <laughs> This wine smells very milky. It smells uh just you get a very a very heavy dairy whiff. <laughs> this wine smells like old cheese. Like that <laughs> anyway, uh when you taste it, uh it's gonna have like this very luscious palette that showcases tropical melon, ripe apricot, and juicy pineapple. Okay, so it's not a real buttery one. Uh, it it has been lightly barrel aged, so it's okay. not a heavy buttery. I think it's going to be a good it's combination. It's like a margarine. <laughs> it's like a nice, nice 
one pallet of butter, not like as much butter as we put on a biscuit. <laughs> so stick. <laughs> it's a little, just a little pad of butter, not a stick oh. of butter. Oh, anyway, uh... Chardonnay is very good with white meat, so pork and chicken, as well as seafood dishes. So I'm going to get into this bottle. Speaking of seafood dishes, um, two things. First off, uh, New Orleans has the best shrimp po'boys in the world. Second off, one of my friends I went to New Orleans with is vegan, and she still really enjoyed New Orleans. She couldn't have any of the seafood or meat or any of that, but girl ate a ton of french fries, and <laughs> she, like, loves french fries, so that was her vacation for her. Your um, po'boy looked so good. Po'boy was absolutely incredible, um, y'all. Also, did not know that a po'boy came in any other form other than with uh fried shrimp but apparently roast beef is super common which i've Catfish, never heard of i think i don't know some other kind of meat all right well i've got this bottle open i'm gonna pour okay see it's not as dark yeah that's a pretty light shard yeah not super super golden i'm still not convinced though all right let's smell this one that smells like a shard it does it does smell um, but it doesn't toasting. have that, like, oil smell. No, it smells... Like, fresh. I mean, okay. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Mmm. <laughs> okay, Tyler hates it. I like this. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. That is, um... Not fruity. I don't know what they were talking about when they were saying like peach and pineapple and melon and no, that is um bready. <laughs> Here, no, no, no. I'm gonna legit do a wine like sommelier testing. And be like, this is what I actually taste. So while you do that, I'm going to tell our listeners. At, since I'm a Chardonnay drinker and I don't hate it, I actually really like this one. It is a good combination of, you know, it's very lightly oaked. It's obviously, it was barrel aged, so not steel. It doesn't have those like crisp, uh, fruity flavors. But I do get those bits of honey, and it is a little bit sweeter from that barrel. I think this is a really good Chardonnay. See, I get notes of like rye, like rye bread, kind of that, like very, that, that very pungent, bready taste. Which is, I'm assuming, the oak. I don't like it. I'm going to drink it because it's wine and it's in front of me. But I also prepared for possibly not liking it and had a couple glasses of Sauvignon Blanc at work. So, <laughs> well, I mean, after work, but <laughs> you're like, still you're at like, the office. At 10 a.m., you're like, hey, time for <laughs> my need to Sauvignon prepare. Blanc. <laughs> you know, um, if you put it in a coffee cup with a lid, you can't really tell. <laughs> it's like those mugs that say this might be vodka. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, I think this is a really good Chardonnay. It's a good combo of, like I said, fruity and also toasted and buttery. And I do get hints of the pineapple. I'm not really getting any of the melon-y flavors, but that pineapple and that honey, I'm definitely getting that. And it is a full-bodied white. You can feel how full it is on your tongue. Mm-hmm. So... Okay, well, I I also do... get notes of, like, almond and, like, kissing someone with a cigarette mouth. That's you, the... You're just, like, saying 
all these bad things because you don't like it. (laughs) I'm just saying, that's what I get from it. Almonds aren't bad. No, almonds are really good. I will say this is nowhere near as buttery as like a Kendall Jackson, which is no, basically that is straight like it, oil like from America's the ground. Number one shard, which is cool for people that like it. I don't know. I do. It's interesting. Chardonnay is really like the one wine I do not like. Like, which is interesting because generally red mm. wine drinkers like Chardonnay and yeah. not other whites. See, I. Do not like Chardonnays. I'm not a huge fan of sweet white wines like a Moscato, but I can still drink it. I just don't like super sugary things in general. Right. But it's it, nothing against like Moscato. Um, I guess sweet reds, cold sweet reds or just sweet reds in general, I like less than this because they're like syrup. But it's true. This is down there. And nothing against Gold Strike. Like it's a great Chardonnay. Yeah. I just do not like Chardonnays. So. Yeah, and this is a really cool bottle, actually, because you can see, like, this guy with his gold right here, and it sparkles. It's like, got, like, gold leaf on it. Um, anyway, it's cool. I've been panning for gold before. Me too. I didn't get anything. but I didn't either. But I went on, it was when I was really young, and I was with mom and daddy in Colorado, and we yeah. went on a gold mining tour. Were you on that tour? I mean... I was definitely like three months old when you did this. Oh, okay. But, okay, it was that um, trip. I have been like when we. <laughs> You're as like a family, I was there. I don't remember being there. When we as a family went back when I was like seven, I think we did a little bit of gold mining too because that's the thing when I've done it or I've done it with Boy Scouts. I would think who knows? Yeah, Boy Scouts. Anyway, it's really fun. Yeah. I All mean, right. It, yeah. Well, get into, um, what's your case? What's your horrible, terrible case that's just going to make me want to continue drinking the Chardonnay? Um, ooh, it'll make you want to finish the bottle. So, mine is the murder of Robbie Middleton. Okay. So, this is a case that is just awful. Um, the sources I used... I'm preparing myself. You should. The sources I used were Ranker, Newsner, Alchetron... (laughs) The Houston Chronicle, ABC 13 News, Daily Mail, and The Courier of Montgomery County. Okay. Which also sounds like an Oscar bait movie title. <laughs> the, Courier. the Courier of Montgomery County. I mean... Put, Actually, that does yeah. sound like a movie that would totally win an Oscar. Yep. It's not. It is a local newspaper. So, Robbie Middleton. Mm-hmm. So, on June 28th of 1998... Robbie Middleton was walking home in Splendora, Texas, to a friend's house. It was his eighth birthday, and he wanted to show his friend his new birthday present, which was a little tent Mm -hmm. for the kids to hang out with. He thought it was really cool. During the walk, he's walking down a little forested path in the neighborhood, and Robbie is attacked. His attacker kidnaps him, ties him to a tree with fishing line. Oh, And poured gasoline all over him before lighting him on fire. What? Wait, he's just an eight-year-old walking around. He's an eight-year-old boy walking to a friend's house on his birthday. On On his eighth birthday. Oh, my God. I already ate your story and I want to just be like, nope, you're done. Next, me. So, Robbie was able to escape when the fire that was burning on him melted the fishing line that he was being used to bind him to the tree. And although much of his body was still on fire, he ran out of the woods and tried to get help. 
Yeah. Um, he ran towards his house, but he was only able to make it to a street that was on the edge of the forest before yeah. he collapsed in the street. Oh my god. Uh, neighbors found him lying on the ground and quickly alerted his mother. Uh, when she found him, burns and blisters covered everything except the soles of his feet. Oh my god. So Robbie was rushed to the hospital and emergency service providers initially, they didn't think he would survive. Yeah. The third degree burns that he sustained required multiple surgeries and skin grafts, but he did eventually stabilize. Oh my God. Thank Um, goodness. He had burns that covered over 99% of his body. But he survived. Yes. Oh my God. This poor baby. So, although he did survive the attack, he was left with, again, third-degree burns all over his body. Yeah. His eyelids were seared off, and the flames <sighs> ate through his fatty tissue and affected his muscles. Oh, my God. And the burns were so extreme that he spent the next decade undergoing more than 200 surgeries, as well as intensive physical therapy. I don't even know how to respond. I'm so horrified right yeah. now. And I absolutely hate this. Yeah. Uh, when I was t- when I was telling you earlier before we started recording that I was in kind of a grumpy mood, uh, it was because of this. Yeah, case. I can absolutely um, understand uh, after reading about this and then knowing you're going to have to tell this story. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Colleen Middleton, who was Robbie's mom, explained how her son screamed for months on end following his severe injuries. And again, only his palms and... The soles of his feet were spared from damage. He became blind in one eye, and the extent of the scarring severely limited his mobility. Yeah. So now the question is, who 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 is this this? person, and why did they do this? Yeah. Oh my god, Robbie. Yeah. So in 1998, police initially questioned a 13-year-old boy named Don Collins in connection with the attack. I was picturing an adult. Yeah. So oh my God. Don Collins was held in a juvenile facility from June of 1998 until January of 1999 while being investigated, but he was eventually released. Mm-hmm. While in custody, Collins allegedly confessed to the attack, but his confession didn't line up and it, there were problems with it. Yeah. It didn't, for what the investigators knew happened, they were like, this is... This confession isn't right. This it doesn't, doesn't make sound sense. like he actually did it. Well, it his confession just wasn't what happened. Weird. It, yeah. That's weird. So there were no eyewitnesses or compelling physical evidence yeah. to link Don to this. And as a result, law enforcement didn't charge him. And because of Robbie's extensive injuries, he had difficulty expressing who committed the crime. Well, and he was also very young. And, I'm, yeah. you know, when you're taken off guard like that, I I don't know. It sounds like everything happened very quickly. Yeah. So in 2000, the complaint that was implicating Collins in the burning was dropped. And prosecutors said they had insufficient evidence and wanted to give Robbie time to heal. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I'm sorry, I know you said this. How long after did this happen? Um... Don Collins was investigated pretty shortly after. Okay, so Robbie's um, still very much in the hospital yeah. and... Okay. Yeah. 
So who is Don Collins? Who's this 13-year-old kid? Yeah. Uh, so Don Collins was a neighbor of Robbie. Um, Collins's mother died when he was eight and his father was absent. Mm-hmm. He was left in the care of relatives who had very little interaction with him. Yeah. Who, basically, he was abandoned but had a roof over his head kind of thing. Yeah, abandoned inside the home. Yeah. So he was a very troubled child and he'd been previously suspected of molesting a six-year-old girl and had oh my once God. stomped a kitten to death. No. Oh, yeah. no. Oh, no. So in 2000... 2000- you know what this unfortunately reminds me of? What? The Your Ukraine murder. Kinda, yeah. It ought- And maybe because of such horrific things happening in the forest. Yeah. Just outside of a neighborhood. Like, just out of sight mm-hmm. of, the, of the road. Mm-hmm. So in 2001, at the age of 16... Don Collins was arrested for sexually assaulting an eight-year-old boy. Oh, my God. And on August 21st of 2001, he entered a juvenile facility in Brownwood to begin serving a four-year sentence for the assault. For this, yeah. yeah. Then, on July 13th of 2007, Collins was sentenced to 45 days after being found guilty of theft of property. Mm-hmm. And he was also convicted of resisting arrest. And then in 2009, he was sentenced and charged with failing to register as a sex offender for his previous crimes of um, sexually assaulting the eight-year-old. Yeah. Um, And he was sentenced to spend the next two years in prison. So he really has a record. Yeah. Like there, it just seems like he is very consistently getting arrested, Mm -hmm. doing something, being arrested, being just in and out, in and out, mostly in. (laughs) Yeah. Granted, all those convictions and everything was after Robbie's attack. Of course. Yeah. Well, he was older. He was 16 with the... Yeah. yeah, When he... um, Yeah. So back to Robbie. He spent most of his life in a hospital in Galveston, Texas Mm -hmm. due to the extensive burns and the even more extensive surgeries. Right. Rebecca Whitlock, who was a nurse who helped him regain his strength and flexibility at this Galveston hospital said that he helped other burned children and even lobbied to keep the hospital open after it was on the verge of closing due to Hurricane Ike in 2008. Yeah. When he was uh, 18. Yeah, he was 18. And he he very much was someone, because he basically lived there. He did. So he was, he was someone who was very friendly to the all the other uh, burn patients. He joked around, he like flirted with the nurses, and he was a good person. I hate that there were so many burned children in the hospital. Like, I'm assuming yeah. obviously they had a burn victims unit, and that's yeah. why they were all there. But it just, that hurts me to think about. Yeah. All of these young kids, all of these children who've been burned for some reason or another, I, I'm glad Robbie was able to be, you know, to mm-hmm. rally and be there for everyone. And yeah completely understand their circumstances and what they're going through like he just sounds phenomenal he does he's someone who i i think there were stories i was reading where you talked to some of the other kids about like yeah no this is really gonna hurt and stuff but like walk them through it and be there for them and be supported and be like this is gonna hurt but this is not that bad and in a couple months you're gonna feel amazing because they you know and just being yeah. able to actually have the perspective and 
still have such a huge heart. Absolutely. Incredible. It is. But Robbie's case would go cold for over 12 years. Whoa. In 2011 is when it picked back up, but for some pretty horrible reasons. Okay. Oh, no. Um, Robbie Middleton was dying from a very aggressive and very rare form of cancer that had stemmed from his very numerous skin grafts and surgeries. Oh, my gosh. And oh, my gosh. I never even thought about cancer coming from something like that. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, when you have so many surgeries and you're on all the anti-rejection meds, your immune system is very weak and, you know, very rare forms of cancer like that can happen. Yeah. Um, So on April 12th of 2011, as Robbie was dying... He made a 27-minute-long deathbed video explaining what he remembered. Mm-hmm. On the tape, Robbie said, Don grabbed me, turned me around, and threw gas in my face. He said that he was blinded by the gasoline, but when he realized he was on fire, he started to run from the woodland trail back home. Mm-hmm. He added, I was running as fast as I could, but I couldn't see where I was running to. Um, He recalled that he was screaming and in horrific pain. Mm. In the video, Robbie explained why Don had set him on fire and why he had waited so long to tell what had happened. So he knew? He knew. This whole time? Yeah. On June 14th of 1998, just two weeks before the attack, uh, Don Collins raped Robbie in the same forest trail where he would later set him on fire. Oh my god. He said that Collins took me out into the woods where I was burned. He pulled my clothes down and started raping me. It was unclear at the time and afterwards if Collins' intention with setting Robbie on fire was to kill him or just severely threaten him to... Hurt him really bad. Um, And he almost got away with it until Robbie released this 27-minute video. And in the video, Robbie told his lawyer that Don did it to silence him. So he wouldn't so talk never about share... what happened. Oh my god. 17 days after releasing the video, Robbie Middleton died on April 29th oh. of 2011 at the age of 20. His death was ruled a homicide and Don Collins was arrested for murder. This is the second case you've had a homicide conviction after a very long period of of still Mm -hmm. living but dying because of the complications yeah which is very interesting and do you know if that is something that is controversial or is it pretty standard i mean to me it makes sense it's like well i think it's your death was directly caused because of this so i think it's not necessarily controversial but i think in a lot of cases it can be harder to get a jury to convict and harder to truly prove murder charge yeah um because it's in robbie's case it's very clear that the injuries from his attack are what led to his death Uh whether he was someone who died after one month in the hospital or after 12 years in the hospital yeah but in other cases i think it can be very difficult to get a jury behind or not difficult but it, it can be more challenging to convince a jury to um, agree to a murder charge yeah. if the death is so much later. That's true. 
So after Robbie released the deathbed video, his family began to seek justice for the crime. Mm-hmm. They filed a wrongful death suit against Collins, as Robbie had identified him as the attacker. Yes. And reportedly Collins didn't show up to the civil trial. Was um, he out of out of jail at this time? Out of juvie? Or... He had very recently gotten out of jail. Very recently, okay. Uh, for not registering as a sex offender. Um, this happened in 2011, and he got out of jail in 2011. Oh, wow, wow. And he's in his mid-20s or so now. And Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, but Collins didn't show up at the civil trial, and he didn't even send a representative to the civil trial. Whoa. So the judge ruled Collins as responsible and awarded the Middletons an unprecedented settlement of $150 billion. Whoa. Yeah. Although to be completely fair, no amount of money will ever make up, but I can't even imagine how their medical bills were. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, it's, and I, I said billion, not million. No, I know you did. Uh, this, this was the largest amount of any suit in U.S. history. Yeah. Even more than the Florida tobacco court case of the 90s where was this money supposed to be coming from though well that's the thing okay the money was more of a symbolic thing because because it would have come from don collins obviously he can't pay that money that's what i was going to ask so the suit i mean it it was very much a symbolic victory they knew they would never see this kind of money absolutely um but the middletons hoped the settlement would pressure county officials to pursue a criminal case against don collins and did it work yes good collins was arrested and charged with robbie's murder so the trial the criminal trial Mm -hmm. was held in galveston county because the case received ex extensive media coverage in their hometown of Montgomery County. Yes. Or their home county of Montgomery County. Yeah. So the case was moved to Galveston. You've been you've been doing a lot of cases in uh this area of Texas. Yeah. There cuz the the suburb Montgomery County is like 35 minutes away from Houston. Yeah. A lot of a lot of shit goes down in Houston. It does. I've well, it, it's true. And mm-hmm. I've actually I've been to Montgomery. There's a city um oh. called Montgomery down there and so this is kind of horrifying. I'm I'm mm-hmm. picturing a lot of these areas and yeah. Yeah. So the prosecution alleged that Collins set eight-year-old Robbie on fire to prevent his crime of raping him from being discovered. Yeah. And while the jury watched Robbie's 27-minute video, Collins turned his back on the screen and seemed to be reading a newspaper. What a jerk. Yeah. And Don Collins pleaded not guilty. His defense lawyer claimed that Robbie, who spent most of his life at the children's hospital, named Collins among with a bunch of other people right after the attack. He was, that Robbie pointed out many different people. Many people who did it. Yeah. And the defense lawyer said there was not enough evidence to convict Collins and accused the Middleton family's attorney of making up the rape theory. Wow. The defense team added that there were no witnesses to the attack and claimed prosecutors were playing to the jury's emotions. They told the jury, Do not expect the defense to bring an eyewitness to this tragedy because there is not one. There are no witnesses from the woods except for Robbie. However, the prosecutors countered that witnesses will testify that Collins admitted to them he poured gasoline on Robbie. Yeah. So there are witnesses not to the actual act, but to 
you know, to Don he, Collins saying, like, I did this. Yeah, to his confessions. Yeah. So the prosecution said... Which, I mean, sorry, mm-hmm. which there are a lot of times there are no witnesses to a crime. Yeah. That, that's... That doesn't that necessarily mean... That doesn't mean it yeah. yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about how even when you do have witnesses... It, it's not reliable. No, it d- doesn't necessarily really do a whole lot. I mean, yeah, it's obviously helpful to have, but for the most part, that's not necessarily the evidence you really need. No. Um, The prosecutors in the case said, our case is based on the testimony of adults who have come forward and can tell you what this man did when they were children. Because the eight-year-old boy that Collins had raped in 2001 at gunpoint. Yeah. Well, he was here. He came back as a witness. Oh, my God. That victim testified at the hearing to determine whether Collins should be tried as an adult for his crimes. And part of his testimony led to Don Collins being charged as an adult. You know, I hadn't thought about that until just now, that he's an adult at this point in time, Mm -hmm. but at the time he was a 13-year-old boy. Yeah, and that does come back. But the victim in the assault said that Collins threatened to burn him if he told anyone about the assault. Okay. So, yeah, the judge determined that Collins could be tried for murder as an adult, despite being a teenager at the time. You know, there are... This just makes me think of how many cases there are out there that are so difficult to determine how to charge and how to sentence someone, and like... Mm-hmm. So, Robbie's mother told the court how Collins had stalked her son in the days before the attack. Oh, my God. And she testified that Robbie told her that Don Collins had tied him up and set him on fire. When Robbie's mother found her badly burned son Mm -hmm. collapsed in the road by her home, she said that in the months after the attack, he was so delirious with pain that he named everyone he knew as his attacker, including the family dog. However, after about a year, when he began to gain lucidity, yeah. he named Don Collins as his attacker, and he never wavered from that. Yeah. So the defense is saying, like, well, he named a lot of people. It's like, we, right. yeah, he did. He was also burned beyond recognition. But after he gained his lucidity, which took a year. I know. When you said um, that, that took my breath away. Because, which it makes sense. I mean, it was a year of severe pain Mm -hmm. a year of i'm sure plenty of painkillers which is also making you know you can't clearly Mm -hmm. think and and it was obviously way more than a year of pain but yeah this that makes sense to me i mean that's Uh a long time but in his situation that absolutely makes sense yeah so on february 10th of 2015 jurors imposed a 40-year prison sentence on don collins for the murder of robbie middleton His punishment was capped at 40 years because he was 13 at the time of the attack. So he was tried as an adult and convicted as an adult, but there were still stipulations. Yes, that is an interesting compromise. Mm -hmm. I can see how they came to that type of conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I I was going to say a fair compromise, but I don't know what's fair in the situation. I wasn't a juror on the case, so I didn't want to use that language, but... This is understandable. Mm-hmm. So, in 2017, Don Collins appealed his sentence based on the fact that 
there had been a change in the laws between the time the crime was committed and the time he was convicted Mm -hmm. that allowed him to be tried as an adult. A state law was passed in 1999, a year after the attack, that allowed juvenile prosecutors to seek adult trials on juvenile suspects who were at least 10 years old at the time of the offense, which brought the minimum age down from 14. Oh. So under the previous law in 1998, uh, you had to be 14 or older to be charged as an adult. Um, In 99... They lowered that age to 10. But this happened in 98. this happened in 98. So Collins' attorney argued that his adult certification was not legal since the law changed a year after the offense and claimed that Collins should only be held accountable to the laws that were in place in 1998. This is such a spider web. Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So three state courts. The 359th State District Court in Montgomery County, the 9th Court of Appeals in Beaumont, and the Texas Supreme Court in Austin all disagreed with his attorney and upheld Collins' conviction. So Collins will not be eligible for parole until 2033. Wow. And I wanted to end it on remembering Robbie. Yeah. So his two older siblings, Clinton and Heather wound up outliving him mm-hmm. um and heather maintained how her little brother mm. kept the family upbeat and had an amazingly optimistic nature although he didn't live long enough to recognize his dreams of driving a car or becoming a wildlife rehabilitator he used his last moments to stop a serial abuser mm-hmm. he did and in the city of galveston Robbie Middleton Day has been established every year on Robbie's birthday, June 28th, to remember him. And a plaque with a city proclamation and a photo of him uh, sits in the lobby of the Galveston Children's Hospital Burn Center, where he lived Mm -hmm. most of his life. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, Robbie. Yeah. This case is gonna fuck me up. Yeah, same. That's so much pain and so many years and so much time and yeah wow well yeah okay mine isn't much better by any means it's still i know it was absolutely it, horrible so it was when i started things are not looking up it was when i really dove into my research because this is the third case i researched the first two cases i looked at i couldn't find that many sources and stuff and so i did kind of surface level and then i found this one and it just dove in so deep and it yeah i wish i did not choose this topic now this was very heavy yeah and and as i was saying mine is not much lighter all right well you ready for me to get into it yep the sources i used were usa today E! News Online, Fox News, CNN, People, New York Post, Cosmopolitan, Oxygen, Commercial Appeal, and News Channel 3, WREG Memphis. Wow. Yeah, there were a lot. So, mine is the case of Jessica Chambers. Okay. So, Jessica was like most teenage girls. She was very strong-willed. She had a bit of a rebellious streak. She's just finding her way, trying to find her own path. Uh, She's a very happy teenager. She was a former high school cheerleader and also an aspiring nurse. 
She lived with her family in Cortland, Mississippi, which is a very small town of just over 500 people. Oh, my gosh. Uh, she lived with her stepmom, Debbie, her dad, Ben, and she had an older sister, Amanda, who was married and had already moved out of the house. Okay. For her rebellious side, I have quotes in the air. She, you know, like many teenagers, smoked uh, both like cigarettes, marijuana. She fought with her parents. Just very normal. She's, she's a teenager. Exactly. Yeah. So she did, however, have volatile relationships with a few boyfriends who had trouble with the law. And she was known by her family to sometimes start reacting a little bit violently when uh, she would get into fights. When she was 17 years old, her older brother, Alan, died in a car crash. Mm. And this was something that very much affected her. Yeah. And, you know, sent her on this rebellious streak. She did have a friend, Lakeisha Meyer, who claimed that she sold marijuana and that she was interacting and knew some pretty shady people. Yeah. So on the evening of December 6th, 2014, Jessica was seen at a gas station wearing a sweater and pajama pants, you know, ones that just look like sweatpants. So she's Mm -hmm. in her comfy clothes. She put $14 worth of gas in her car, which is more than the $5 she generally put in. Mm -hmm. So Ali Fadel, who was the clerk at the gas station, asked her, you know, why are you putting in more gas? It wasn't what he was used to seeing. Again, this is a town of 500 people. Yeah. So So when she comes and always puts in five bucks and all of a sudden 14, he's like, wait, this is different. What's going on? Yeah. And she said she was going to go somewhere. On her way out, her phone rings and she answers. And that's the last time she's seen before um, what I'm about to get into happens. Oh. At about 8.15 p.m., she was about two miles away from her house. Mm-hmm. Her 2005 Kia Rio erupts in flames. Oh. A passing motorist found Jessica wandering on a back road. She had burns on 98% of her body. Oh, my gosh. And she just, she needed help. So they called yeah. one. One of the first responders, Cole Haley, said that he was so shaken by his encounter that he had with Jessica that he was traumatized for months. Mm. Um, he said she had her arms out. She's saying, help me, help me, help me. Her hair was fried like it had been stuck in a light socket. <sighs> her face was black and her body, again, was severely burned. God. When he saw Jessica in the middle of the road, she was only clothed in underwear and her bra. Mm. And he said his first reaction was to go grab a blanket, you know, cover her up, conceal yeah. her. She's in her undergarments. Um, after he wraps a blanket around her, he's trying to walk her towards the back of the fire truck, but she couldn't she couldn't walk. Like she couldn't go very far. So he laid her down and she reaches out for his hand. Other firefighters and first responders are arriving at the scene mm-hmm. and you know, they're overhearing Jessica trying to speak and say who possibly did this to her. And she's mm-hmm. saying things that sound like Eric or Derek. Um, her speech was incredibly garbled. She wasn't really able to enunciate syllables. Yeah. She's very difficult to understand because her mouth was charred. Oh. Um, and there was also the loudness of all the rescue equipment and everything happening in the background. There are tons of people there. Yeah. And this would later become um, evidence that was heavily debated at the trial. Oh. Jessica was transported by helicopter to a hospital in Memphis. Um, however, within just a few hours, she succumbed to her injuries and passed away. Mm. 
her stepmother, Debbie, had last seen her around five o'clock that night when she was going down the road to the gas station, you know, in convenience store. That was yeah. the last that oh. her her stepmom knew. Two hours later, she calls her stepmom and says she's going to be home soon. And an hour after that, Jessica's father, Ben, who worked at the sheriff's department as a mechanic, got a call about the fire. God. It only took a few days after Jessica's death for the first fraudulent fundraiser to show up online. Are Again, you this is 2014. Her parents ended up having to issue a public warning to be aware of scammers hoping to play on people's grief because of the situation. Yeah. Her sister Amanda created a Facebook page called Justice for Jessica in hopes of potentially getting tips, information, and to create a place to remember her. Yeah. Within 24 hours, 159,000 people had liked the page. Unfortunately, there were strangers who were harassing the family, including Jessica's mom, Lisa Doherty, accusing them of having something to do with the crime. What the fuck? Self-appointed at-home detectives, so armchair detectives, yeah. obsessed over every single detail of the case, digging up phone numbers for her exes and others on the chance that they might be involved. Or they spread terrible rumors that it was Jessica's dad who murdered her. What the fuck? Everyone was interested in her case, and her face was all over the national news. So this tiny town was then just on the map. Yeah. And everyone was paying attention. For more than a year, her family was in the dark, not knowing any information, not knowing who did it. Nothing was coming out. Her father, Ben, said that Jessica got in over her head with some people... She found out some things that she shouldn't have known. She had a bit of a smart mouth, so she probably talked off to someone. And that could have been what caused the aggression. Finally, in February 2016, so a little over a year after the crime, a criminal indictment was announced. Oh. When her mom called Amanda to tell her of the news, Amanda fell to the ground. She knew this guy. His name was Quentin Tellis, and she went to elementary school with him. So he was older than Jessica. Yeah. Amanda remembered that he was one of those kids that got into a lot of trouble. He really liked attention. When a teacher would tell him to do something, he would do the exact opposite. She even worked with his sister at a fast food restaurant, and they were close and used to texting each other every once in a while. Mm. Jessica had never mentioned Quentin to Amanda. So tell us, Quentin... He, he lied about being with Jessica on that day, and he provided a bunch of different alibis, but none of them panned out. He said he barely knew Jessica, but according to records, for two weeks, they were texting each other back and forth and talking on the phone every single day. Oh. On the same day that Jessica was attacked, text messages show that she rejected his request for sex four times. His DNA was also found on Jessica's keys, and his cell phone records connected him to the location that night oh he was eight years older than her jesus that is that's a lot of connection so because if it just been like one if it just been like the cell phone pinging had him there then that's then maybe it's not as reliable because that i mean as we've seen with like the adnan case that doesn't necessarily mean anything not necessarily but all of that jesus okay yeah No, I would absolutely be like, that is suspect number one. Suspect number one. Like I said, he was indicted in February 2016, 
and was charged with capital murder and arson. He fiercely maintained his innocence, and his indictment caused a lot of racial tensions. Um, He was also an African-American man. Mm -hmm. And this escalated in this small rural community. And um, like I said, this community was then thrust into the spotlight. Yeah. So there was a lot of racial tensions surrounding this case. He was also being currently charged with first-degree murder in another case. Oh. The July 29th, 2015 death of Mengxian Hsiao. He was a 34-year-old of Taiwan. She was an exchange student at the University of Louisiana Monroe, and she had been stabbed 34 times until she gave out her PIN number for her debit card. And this is what is according to the warrant filed in July 2016. Fuck. Previously, before Tellus was extradited to Mississippi, he'd been in the Paris jail accused of using her debit card three times after her death. Tellus had also been charged with one count of possession of marijuana with intent to distribute. Okay. And this was a charge he did plead guilty to in May 2016. Oh, I wonder if that's how Jessica knew him. Uh, quite possibly. Um, the plan was for Tellus not to return to Monroe to face trial in the killing of Ming Shen mm-hmm. until after Jessica's trial was done. Okay. So, like, He's being convicted of both of these. They decide to do Jessica's trial first, and then they'll do the other one. Okay. The trial began on October 10th, 2017. Oh, so this isn't that long ago. This is, what, a year and a couple months ago? Yeah, so it happened in 2014. Yeah, but the the trial, I mean. Right, so it, it happened in 2014. He was indicted in 2016 at the beginning of the year, and then... The case had to be built against him. So it finally went to trial October 10th, 2017. And because, again, with the worries that Tellus, a black man who, again, was eight years older than white teenage Jessica, Mm -hmm. would not receive a fair trial uh, because of all the publicity surrounding the case. I can absolutely understand that, especially in the Deep South. Exactly. So that is why the... Jury was selected more than 200 miles away in Pike County, and they transported them to Batesville, which was where the trial was being held about five miles outside of Cortland. So it's the bigger city, quote unquote, outside of Cortland. As it turns out, Jessica had met Tellus in November 2014, around the time of Thanksgiving. Yeah. He attended the same high school, but this was long before she was a student. He was introduced to Jessica through a friend at the gas station there in Cortland. And, I mean, I assume in a small town, that's how you meet people. Yeah, yeah. And like they would... It, that's not... Yeah. No, it's not weird. I mean, and they rode around together, like, just hung out, driving... I mean, yeah. you're driving around in a car, like, that's totally It's a town normal. of 500 people. Like, yeah. Like, that's what you that's, do. You just go... You drive around, drive go around. to the Dairy Queen. Essentially like, driving circles. Yeah, yeah. Um, A friend of Jessica's testified that the three of them... Rode around in Jessica's car earlier that day on December 6th, and that she and Jessica smoked marijuana, but Tellus didn't. Yeah. Tellus did go as far to say that he and Jessica at one time did have a sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. He was telling story about one incident when they were in the passenger seat of her car, and he went into great detail saying that, you know, they leaned the passenger seat all the way back and she was on top of him. And so, you know, that was yeah. how they were they were having sex. It's a lot of detail to give the court. Well, 
it was actually not beneficial for him to give that much information. Um, yeah. Because when they looked at her car as it was burned, you know, the aftermath, the passenger seat was in that same position that he had just described. Oh, okay. The prosecution maintained that the text messages proved that Telus was eager to have sex with Jessica again, which, you know, is evident in the four times that yeah. she denied him. And Also, um, dude, take a fucking hint. I know. You should never have to tell someone four times, no, I don't want to sleep with you. Yeah. You should have to tell them once. Yeah. Like, do you want to have sex? No, I'm good. Okay. Yeah. The Literally end. all that's needed. Literally all God. that's needed. Um, the prosecution stated that Tellus had tried to suffocate Jessica, and then when he thought she was dead, doused her with an accelerant and lit her on fire. In the aftermath of her death, Tellus deleted the text messages that they had going back and forth, and he admitted that he wiped all communication and said yeah. that, you know, it was just a few days after her murder, and he didn't want those on his phone anymore because she was dead, and so he would not be using that number anymore, so he just deleted it. Like, why keep this on my phone? That's sounds like the most heartless fucking, as fuck. Yeah, it sounds so insensitive, and it's like, oh yeah, it was a few days after she died. It was someone I had, you know, a semi- like sexual relationship with and i just like i'm not gonna delete text her. her again she's dead like, like she's so dead we're not gonna text her. anymore the fuck up bitch yeah the prosecution's case hinged largely on the cell phone data that placed telus and jessica together for much of the day that she died yeah he uh being telus previously told investigators that he had been with jessica that same day and part of that night and so you know he's very much he placed himself there and they're like, and the, the phone evidence shows that that is true. So, so far, he seems very suspicious. I'm yet to hear anything concrete. Yeah, I agree. This is all seemingly very circumstantial evidence. Yeah. The defense's case held very tightly to the evidence that the night of the murder, there were multiple people, multiple firefighters and emergency crew members who heard Jessica trying to say the name of her killer, which sounded very much like Eric. However, a speech pathologist testified that Jessica was so severely burned that she would not have been able to produce any articulate sound. So there's no way she was actually saying a name. Yeah, she was, was saying just, two syllables of It was just sound. sounds yeah. that were coming out of her mouth, probably because of the traumatic injuries that she was yeah. experiencing. So during the trial... Jurors visited the site of the fire, the Eminem grocery store, which is where the security camera footage last recorded Jessica on that night uh, mm-hmm. there at the convenience store, and Telus's home nearby. Um, and this was just to give them. I forget that juries travel sometimes. I know. Like it all because that's first, weird. I mean, honestly, the first time I learned that that actually happened OJ? was the OJ case. Yeah, yeah, when they went to his house and they staged it and all of that. Which I didn't to know me, that was that's... a thing. To me, like, that's, pro- like, one of the big reasons of why you wouldn't. I know, because there's it nothing can totally to say, be staged. Yeah, there's nothing to say that this scene looks the same as it did then. Because even, like, the scene of the fire, it's now been three years. Yeah, so it's like since. a field. So, okay. Well, and they did this to just talk about, again, the cell phone evidence and show, like, the path of where she'd been and yeah. the distances between them. And I just I, want... I don't know. Because I can see how having the jury go to places can give that personal connection 
on either side of the case. Yeah. You know, personal connection to the victim, personal connection to the accused, whatever. But it seems like there's so much that can be tainted with that. For example, like in the OJ case, staging the house to make it look, you like know. Like he's this big family man. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that just always seems very interesting. Also, even th- then just going into like the cost and liability of like transportation, like getting it, like for what For what benefit? real, real purpose Yeah, like what benefit. is the, the tangible thing other than... Getting them to connect a little more, which it's I mean, not he's tangible. big. There is no tangible. Yeah, but it's it, it, you know it is important for the jury to be able to connect to the case. But I just don't necessarily see why. I agree. I absolutely agree. So essentially, as it turned out, the jury. Why? Sorry. Why you would take them out? I understand why it's good to have them for them to have a connection. Understand why it's. Oh no, I yeah. was following. I was I following. Know. I was like, I was thinking about how I said that. I was like, mm, hold on. Wait, let but me yeah. clarify. No, no, you're good. I got what you're yeah. saying. Essentially, jurors had to choose between the evidence that the prosecutor said linked Tellus to Jessica's death uh-huh. and the testimony by emergency works that they said heard um, the dying Jessica saying someone's name like Eric. I feel like. So those were the two big pieces of evidence, huh. which they're weak. Yeah, I feel like they're both very weak. I feel like neither party really did their job. I mean, granted, I'm not an attorney. I don't have any experience in it, but... It just sounds like they it seem was very all, thin. Their, their cases were thin. It was based on circumstantial and trying to prove that the words of someone who's dying who can barely speak are... Yeah. Real yeah, evidence after such a traumatic event. Well, and there's no reason to think that, yeah, they're asking her who did this, who did this, and she's making sounds that she even understands what they're asking. No, it's true. It's true. So after deliberation, the verdict was initially read as not guilty. Oh. However, when the judge then pulled the jury, you know how they ask each juror, did yeah. you plead? Did you plead? Several of the jurors said they voted guilty. And there was not a unanimous uh, vote there. And so the judge declared a mistrial. Like, the jury oh. room was a shit show. Yeah, I can imagine why. Um, I don't know where the miscommunication happened or what happened. But onlookers were saying, like, this was unlike anything they had ever seen where the verdict is given as not guilty. And so Tellus then has this relief. Then you go to the jurors and they're like, no, I said guilty, and then there's just chaos. So, was the foreman just one of the people who said not guilty was like, I'm taking over? What? No. Like, that's... I really don't huh. know what happened, but because of this, it was declared a mistrial. Yeah. The second trial began on September 24th in 2018. Very recent. Same arguments, same evidence presented. After the second trial ended, the jury met for 10 hours over two separate days. Mm-hmm. And they could still not come to a unanimous decision. And the second trial ended in a hung jury in October 2018. Which I can understand not being able to commit one side or the other because there's not there's not enough evidence either way. Because, yeah, in some ways, you know, yeah. he was with her. He had this relationship with her. There's... Uh, definitely, I guess, motive. He wants to have sex there. She doesn't. You can see that as motive. But, but there's never... that's not... 
there's nothing that, you know, there's no camera footage of him buying gasoline mm-hmm. or of anything like that. And well, then on the flip side, taking the evidence of the defense and saying that if she's saying Eric or Derek or something, it's eh, ick. Yeah, obviously, you know, it's not Quentin. Yeah. Because that's different syllables. And I'm like, well, okay. I just feel like both. I feel like there wasn't enough of a, like, research well, kind and of portion. It does not surprise me that with the lack of physical evidence, yeah. convincing 12 jurors of one way or the other, yeah. it, it seems like almost an impossibility. And and it all, it ultimately sounds like the two juries couldn't get past that possibility that Jessica was trying to identify her killer, and it didn't sound anything like Quentin Tellis. And that, you know, could be... Again, they weren't there. The jury wasn't there. Yeah. And all of these first responders and firefighters and everyone is saying that it sounded like she was trying to identify someone and that they were all hearing things that sounded like Eric or Derek. And so hearing that much testimony, yeah. Even with the speech pathologist going in and saying, no, there's no way she could articulate actual yeah. like words or anything. It's just... I can see that confusion. Convince, no. With that type of evidence, trying to convince 12 no. people to agree? Well, and also, no. it's not like, you know, it would be different if the entire jury was speech pathologists or people who were educated in that field. Because Which would absolutely never be the case. I mean, yeah. I could see an argument of, you know, with the burns she suffered in her mouth and throat, help me coming out as something that could be interpreted as Eric or whatever. I don't I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. Uh, but I also on neither side does the evidence convince me guilty or not guilty. No. Which no. personally for me in that case I would have to say not guilty because it's y- not strong enough. But I would also not feel good about it. So I yeah, no, I absolutely understand hung jury. I get it. However, tell us is He's not a free man. Mm. I mean, he remains in prison while he serves out this five-year sentence from an unrelated burglary conviction. Yeah. Um, And then there's also, he's still facing charges in the 2016 stabbing of uh, the 34-year-old Ming Shen. Yeah. So, I mean, there is a possibility that prosecutors are going to retry the case for a third time, but... There is not an immediate indication whether or not they're going to, to do this. Yeah. However, the family very much is still seeking justice for the brutal death of Jessica. I mean, absolutely. Um, I can... Obviously, they're never going to stop seeking justice, but God, no. I just... I don't I don't know where you could go to get more evidence. I don't either. And this is, this is a case where, yeah, it very much... Sounds like he's guilty, but it's all circumstantial, so I yeah. don't really know. It's, I am it's because, definitely not convinced one way or the other. No, and it's definitely because the articles I was reading were clearly very biased yeah. that he was, because he's also the only suspect. Yeah. Well, and if his guilt is the case, it really, you know, there there must be some more like yeah, there, physical evidence that needs to be yeah. found in order yeah. to convict him. And I and I think, yeah. and I didn't read this anywhere. This is just my my pure speculation. But 
it almost seems as if the prosecution is trying to find that before mm. they take this to a third trial. I could because absolutely... they really have to have a reason to take it. Yeah, no, because I could it... absolutely see that. Yeah, I mean, if the same thing is just going to happen again. Yeah, they need the evidence. The evidence isn't there right now. No. And I'm sure, you know, no, no crime is perfect. There is evidence out there. It's just finding it. They haven't found it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I will say the Cosmopolitan article I read was an interview with her sister Amanda and just telling Amanda's account of the situation and the things she did and her relationship with Jessica as the older sister. And that one really broke my heart. Yeah. It was so personable and it was, I believe the interview happened either right, I think it was before the, um, hung jury in the second trial yeah but it was after the first and it just you know that breaks my heart and it's one of those things that shows cases can take so long to be resolved even once you have a suspect because you know they found telus in 2016 it's now 2019 and we're just fresh off of that second hung jury yeah and so it's you know actively there are people right now trying to decide what next steps yeah. are to get justice for jessica well, and looking for more evidence and yeah. well and you have to take it as a obviously obviously you want him to be guilty because, because that means they found someone that yeah you found the person who did it yeah you can have justice but the idea of an innocent person could go away because of circumstantial evidence because he was with her because you can also look at it as like oh well her other friend was with her all day you know hanging out riding around and smoking pot and and, well that's the thing what if they got in a fight about the weed and got in a drug fight or you know there there are too many possibilities there are that it's not this guy yeah there's way too much evidence and the fact that it seems as if a lot of their circumstantial evidence lies on the fact that there were sex, drugs, and hanging out in a small yeah. town. I'm like, literally, that's what everyone was doing. I know. I'm like, uh, you can't. It's just, it's not. There isn't even, yeah. to be fair, I don't know after a car has been completely torched if you would ever have the possibility of finding DNA to prove that Quentin was in the car. But I'm, he also admitted I'm sure he was. you can find it. He he places. also admitted he was oh, yeah, so at a point. So if you found his hair, you found unburned remnants of his DNA. It's like, well, yeah, he said he rode around with her all the time. He said they had sex in the car. Like that's not exactly. Yeah. And there, you know, that could have been his counsel's mm-hmm. recommendation for him to reveal that information to be like, Maybe. hey, let him know you were in that car and that you had some type of relationship with her because that still doesn't connect you to the fact. Because literally, I feel like. The evidence of the fact that the passenger seat was laid back. To be completely honest, maybe she never set it upright. Yeah. You know? I mean, Even if, if she, someone was yeah. sitting there, maybe they never set it upright. Maybe yeah. they felt like, oh, I'm going to lay back like this. Like, I like this yeah. comfortable position or whatever. Yeah. Maybe it's when she was driving evidence. around with her stoned friend, stoned friend was like, I'm high. I'm going to take a nap. And yeah. laid, like, that's There are so, just yeah. too many possibilities. And... I really, really want there to be justice for Jessica. Mm-hmm. And if Quentin did it, I would like him to eventually get convicted. But no. it's going to be an interesting case to see what, what steps they take next. Absolutely. Um, her death was horrific. 
Um, yeah. Like having gasoline poured on you and then being let in your own car. Yeah. And getting out of that car. Because I imagine, you know, because she got out of the car and she was yeah. wandering the street. As far as what I could tell, she wasn't still engulfed in flames while she was walking around. But yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I just. No, that's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, postmortem? Yeah, let's do the postmortem. So Do we have to? Because I don't want to. I don't want to relive either case. We have to. I mean, yes. I think your case was... Okay, they were both horrific. Mm-hmm. I feel like yours, there was finally a resolution. Yeah, I disagree, though. on Because I assume you're, you're saying that... I mean, yeah, I was saying I thought I thought yours was even more horrific horrific to listen to. Oh, then that's what I was saying. Yeah. That's I agree. I like my you, case is one that will keep me up. Why do I always do this? One, why do I always pick these fucking cases? And two, why do I always find the cases with children? I don't know. Like you do. You often do. Fuck. So but I don't know. Part of me also this is one thing that I like doing cases that aren't more well-known like these because I think every victim of these deserves to have recognition and to have their story told. Yes, they absolutely do. I 100%. And And it's not... I like doing the the more unrecognizable cases too. And mm -hmm. I feel like we have almost this like roller coaster of the ups and downs mm-hmm. of recognized versus super yeah. well known. Well, recognized... And I think it's a good pattern to have. Yeah. Well, in well recognized cases, I mean, they're definitely interesting to do because it's a case of, you know, this, but do you know the case really? But the yeah. ones that are unrecognized there or not, I don't want to say unrecognized, no, but the yeah, ones say, that are say, less well known. Yeah. Less well known. Um, I I don't know. I just I think every victim deserves to have their story told and They do. I mean well, the the fact that that like Robbie Middleton Day in Galveston mm-hmm. is because of him and because the impact he had on the other children in the burn unit and just how much of a positive force he was is amazing. And that's how however horrible and tragic the cases are it's things like that that i'm like that warms my heart i hate that it had to happen but the it's the silver lining yeah like and you know we do this not by any means to glorify these monsters oh fuck no but to tell the stories of the victims and to remember them Mm -hmm. and that's the whole reason that we talk about this and it's you know, I have the interest of the psychological and, you know, why do people do the things oh, that yeah. they do? What? We do this for the victims and to remember them. Yeah. Not to make the monsters who do these things famous. Absolutely. I think that's a great note to end on. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in, for listening to this episode. It was, um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Yep. <laughs> They all are. Yeah, um, they, yeah. Be sure to leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. Let us know what you think. 
Um, also like and follow us on social. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Yeah. Um, check it out. Check out our website. Yeah, check out our website. Uh, check out our merch store, which is on our website. Yes, um, we have a merch store. And and we have some more exciting things coming for you guys. Yes, we do. We have so um just more you things wait. that maybe in the future you'll see uh some new stuff popping in that merch store. So make Absolutely. sure to Keep an eye on it. Check on it. So Yes. But yes, thank y'all so, so much for tuning in. Um, I am going to, um, even though I don't like it, I'm going to drink the rest of this Chardonnay in my glass because I need it. And I'm going to drink the rest of Chardonnay because I need it, but also because I like it. Okay. So, all right. XOXO. Blood and Wine signing off. Bye. Bye.